From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. When the COVID-19 pandemic struck the United States in the spring of 2020, Jennifer Jewell rushed to get her annual supply of seeds ordered for her garden. And she wasn't alone. By the time she had gotten online, she was met by supplier after supplier that was out of stock of many of the seeds she had always taken for granted. Just think about that. When things got scary, people across the United States instinctively rushed to get their hands on plant seeds. Two years later, as she was preparing the preface to her new book about the personal, ecological, and cultural significance of seeds, Jewel wrote that if water, air, soil, and fire are the four primary elements, it takes seed as a fifth element for humans to make the first four equal life here on Earth. Seed is life. Jennifer Jewell is the creator and host of the weekly public radio program and podcast, Cultivating Place, which is syndicated on NPR affiliate stations across the nation. And she's the author of the recent book, What We Sow. Jennifer Jewell, welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It is a great pleasure to be in conversation with you, Matthew. Jennifer, there's a term that you use in this book that I rather liked. Uh, you, you call yourself a student of seed. And that began for you when you were very young, but it was a sort of learnership that you took on more and more throughout your life and really took off when you moved to Northern California in 2007. Tell me about becoming a student of seed. Well, and and I often even refer to it, which is so apt for your program, as a discipleship, right? And the uh, relationship between discipline and discipleship and being a student is all uh, very resonant for me. And I think it became visible to me that I was a student of seed in 2007 as a grown adult on a native plant hike in my new area to me, um, trying to learn the native plants of my new environment and uh, trying to identify what they look like, where they grew, how they interacted together. And a wonderful older uh, professor at California State University, Chico, a, a retired and now past professor of biological sciences, was leading this native plant hike that I was on. And he, at some point in the hike, reached down and picked up one of our magnificent California native gray pine cones. Now these, if you are not familiar with them, are quite a large cone, larger than anything I had seen having come from Colorado and grown up with ponderosas and uh, pinion pines, which all have very like petiter cones. These are big cones. And uh, so that was impressive in and of itself. But then he tapped this cone on a nearby rock and out popped the pine nuts. And then he proceeded to peel back the seed coat on one of the nuts and then bisect the nut in half so that we were looking at the interior of the flesh of the nut, the endosperm of the nut. And he pointed to the outlines of the embryo of the what would be the nascent pine tree. And there was this sort of like epiphany of, 
Of course our seeds grow into their plants, but when it was pointed out to me that an enormous and, you know, hundreds of year old pine tree came from this one tiny nut, it was a real like, you know, I don't know, slap your forehead moment of like, wow, right, that's true. And um, and from then on, I have just been deeper and deeper in love with with seeds, with seed mechanisms, with all that comes with that, Matthew. And a gray pine. I mean, this is a thing that's going to grow a hundred feet into the sky. It's not even the greatest of the pines, but I mean, uh, it's a ten-story building that's going to come from this little tiny thing. There are all these great passages and aphorisms that sort of relate to that idea in your book about seeds. And these span the scope of all of our societies. But one of the ones you're fond of, and I was wondering if you'd reflect on, is this old Welsh proverb, which is, a seed hidden in the heart of an apple is an orchard invisible. Isn't that magical? I love it so much. Yeah. And 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 it's this optical illusion that is in fact truth if you think about it in the right plane. That one apple seed can bear an entire tree, but that entire tree will bear generations and generations of apples every year, each full of their own seed, which will get dispersed out across, you know, because it's dispersed by animals largely, birds and mammals. It, it could be an orchard that spans hundreds of miles of these seeds dispersed, planted, germinated, and then flourishing in their own places. Like and and this, I think, is is one of those reflective moments of like, that is true of a human as well. Like we have the capacity as a single human to make a very large impact beyond our ability to see or conceptualize. And this is true of our beloved plants as well. I spoke at the onset of the show about your rush to buy seeds during the start of the pandemic, which is, I think, something a lot of us can relate to. By October of that year, a period in which we were still very much in the heart of this global epidemic, you had decided to write a book about seeds. So I'm wondering what it was about what was happening in that year that made you go, oh yeah, this is how I'm going to spend my time as I wait out this storm. Yeah. Well, it was that realization, again, another like, you know, come to Jesus moment for me of realizing just how much I didn't know about seed. So in that moment, in March of 2020, I happened to have been on the road speaking about my first book, The Earth in Her Hands, and a, a whole cohort of the women I featured in that book and researched in that book were seed keepers. And so in this moment, when I'm on the road, I realize we haven't planned for our spring garden. And my partner, John, and I turned to each other and say, okay, well, let's order our seeds. And we got these messages as you related. And then it became clear that a lot of people were getting these messages. And I thought to myself, well, wait a minute, like how, how can we be out of seed already? Because if we're out of seed, that is like 
a primal problem. That is a an existential problem in our world. And so, you know, I uh, as I started to research where the block was coming and where the seeds were coming from and who the seed growers were, I just kept uncovering more and more aspects of the seed world. And um, that was compelling to me. It, it felt like if I didn't know it but was interested in it, that many other uh, nature-loving, garden-loving humans would also be interested in it. You reflect on a lot of this in the journal entries that you include in your book. It's full of journal entries that you make throughout this year of planting and harvesting and reflecting on the role of these seeds that you've put into the ground, that you've nurtured. Did you do that for the book or have you always journaled in that way? I have always journaled in that way, but never perhaps as consistently as I did for the book. And of course, they are curated journal entries. I, I didn't tell you everything. Like, I didn't give all of my journal entries into the yeah, book. Yeah, the ones I, about like your complaints about John didn't make right, it into the book. No, right. No, John. <laughs> God love him. And um, no, I, I focused them on this, the seed. And But what I did determine to do at the outset of the year was it was very apparent to me that I, and in doing my own research and finding other seed books that had been written, right? I had found several that were fabulous about the history of the co-evolution of, of seed plants and, um, you know, the 300,000 flowering seed-bearing angiosperms that have been co-evolving on our planet for 365 million years and them comprising 82% of all plant life on the planet, right? So a lot of that kind of scientific research. But in the books that were giving that, it felt sort of bloodless, I, I want to say. Like, it was great scientific research, but it didn't have skin in the game of why does this matter to me? And why does it matter on multiple fronts? And, you know, why it matters to me is the same reason it matters to you whether you know it or not, uh, but I think it does to you. And But to everybody, whether they know it or not, because plants are the basis for everything. I happened to have been with a farmer in Kansas the other day, and on that day he was both harvesting soybeans and he was sowing wheat. And he was talking about the ways in which the cycles of his crops keep him connected. And I thought this was really interesting, both to the ways in which the world stays so much the same from year to year, and then also in the ways in which it changes from one year to the next. And that's a sentiment I took in your book as well. Yeah, I, I think it's true. I think it's, um, it's one of the things that both gardeners and farmers have and land-based peoples across time and space have in common that this connection to putting a seed in the ground, watching it germinate, and then watching it live out its whole life cycle, it reminds us how big we are, right? How much power and control we have in the care of this individual species. But it also reminds us that we are so small and we are part of a continuum that goes on with or without us, to be honest, and has been doing so for 
millions of years, and therefore we might have something to learn from that. But certainly we gain an enormous amount of perspective, surrender, faith, if you will. We put seeds in the ground intentionally, but we're, as you say, so small compared to the seeding that's happening beyond us, completely without us, which has been going on long before us, which will keep on going on long after us. And I guess I had never thought of all of the ways that that happens. I knew it happened, but you spent a good part of an entire chapter describing all of the different ways or many of the different ways that seeds are spread. There are some that a lot of people think of, like wind dispersal or wildlife dispersal, you know, animals eating fruit and pooping out the seeds. And and then there are ways that just sort of blew my mind, like ballistic dispersal. Can you right. talk about ballistic dispersal? Because this is so cool. This is so fun. And and like, it, you know, if you're ever worried about engaging uh, another person in the fun of seeds, like find a ballistic seed. There's a there's a, an exploding cucumber uh, that's like a, a native plant. Uh, and I, I, I wish I could remind myself of the species name exactly for you right now. But uh, one of my uh, sort of mentor seed people, Dr. Robert Schlissing, he loves to pass these out to students because you just, when the little tiny cucumber-like fruit is ripe, you just touch it and it just explodes like a water balloon and out go the seeds everywhere. So many of our listeners listen to this show when they're in the car. But if you're not in a car right now and you are at a computer, because I've just done this, like look this up. These Yeah. These photos and videos are fantastic. It's so great. It's so great. And I love that there are scientists who focus all their time on like measuring how far does a ballistic mechanism shoot a seed. So I think one that many people will be familiar with is lupin, like the pea, the, the pea pods on a lupin plant, uh, which are a little bit like a sweet pea pod or a snap pea pod. But the way they are formed in this long, you know, very iconic P shape, one side of that pod will be facing the sun more frequently in the day or the hotter sun than the other side. And when that happens, uh, the, the seams along the edges uh, dry and contract. But one side, the side in the sun, contracts faster and uh, more pronouncedly than the other side. This creates this kind of spiral torque. And that torque, as the seed is, uh, the seed pod is ripening and drying and the beans are inside, the little hard, dry peas of the lupin, finally the torque is so great that the whole thing just pops like a spiral. And it's a visible, audible pop. And um, I, I read descriptions of like Forest Service uh, park rangers, this kind of, of people walking through fields of native lupin, whether it's in Maine or Colorado or California, wherever, lupin is a relatively ubiquitous uh, genus for native plants. And, and it just sounding like you know, uh, like Rice Krispies, like pop, 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 pop. And these, but there are, there are several different uh, 
uh, ballistic seed groups. And as I say, like researchers are at work trying to see exactly how far they go, what this means for migration patterns, what this means for dispersal by animals who often will then pick that seed up and carry it even further. It's fascinating research. Humans have been cultivating seeds for tens of thousands of years. Uh, this is part of all of our cultural heritage. But also, it's important to note, and you note in your book, that a lot of what we have inherited in terms of seeds today are the product of cultivation by indigenous people over thousands and thousands of years. And you've written about the fact that just like land and water and air and other things that colonial powers have taken from indigenous people, seeds have been taken from these original owners by colonization and, and capitalism. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it, it again is, it is challenging emotionally and intellectually to read these stories and not be frustrated, despairing, angry. Um, but yes, I mean, I, I think this is a, a facet of humankind across time and space as well, that when one group wants to dominate or subdue or steal land and resources from another group, they target their food. And the the loss of native cultivation methods and native crops and seeds and biodiversity uh, in the expansion to the West, like they, there was a very strategic process to this for the U.S. government, especially with westward expansion um, of European-based seed being sent out to settlers and, uh, and small townships in order to establish European-style crops and farming. Uh, and erasing um, and, you know, uh, there's not a verb for genociding, but killing um, the native plants and their peoples along the way in order to gain control of land and resources. But what is particularly uplifting is the stories of the indigenous uh, seed stewardship that is taking place, I would say, indigenous and <clears throat> Black and Asian immigrant descendants are among the most catalyzed and most uplifting and energizing of uh, humans working to reconnect culturally significant seed back to its people of descent. And you know, it's it's like biodiversity is so important in anything, and we are reminded of that interrelationship. Uh, between a diversity of humans and perspectives and um, and understandings and knowledge bases is every bit as important as the biodiversity of the flora and fauna on the planet as well. Protecting biodiversity is one of the greatest challenges and opportunities that we have today. There's this island you write about, about midway between mainland Norway and the North Pole, where a cooperative partnership between the Norwegian government and a nonprofit has been amassing this massive 
collection of seeds, about a million different seed varieties from all over the world. This is one of several large seed banks in the world. And these exist for many reasons. But one of the big ones is to act as an insurance policy in the event of a collapse of biodiversity on our planet. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So the 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 seed bank you're referring to is one of our biggest, our flashiest, our newest of major seed banks in the world. And there are something just over, I think, 1,500 very large regional or government-sponsored um, seed banks in the world looking to uh, secure and and protect the the germplasm, the seed, uh, and other ways of propagating plants. Svalbard, as it's called, um, sometimes nicknamed the Doomsday Vault, which is depressing. Uh, and it, it, again, as you just noted, is this collaboration between governments, between regional seed banks, uh, something like Seed Savers Exchange or the Cherokee Nations Seed Bank. All of these groups came together and recognized that the, the vulnerability of a single seed bank trying to preserve the seed that it is preserving. If one major weather event takes place or one major socio-political event takes place, that seed bank could be knocked out. And so Svalbard is essentially this backup copy of all these other seed banks. Svalbard was established and opened over a number of years. It was established over a number of years, but opened, I believe, in 2008. In 2014, its importance became clear when the Syrian war uh, bombed, like in the course of the Syrian war, a, a large and historic seed bank holding the diversity of dry land crops across the Middle East. So like the Fertile Crescent, these are important crops and in important wild progenitors of important crops like wheat, for instance. This dry land seed bank called ICARDA, I-C-A-R-D-A, which is an acronym, was bombed and it had to be evacuated. They had backed up their entire collection at Svalbard. And as a result, they then returned to reestablish the seed bank, not in Aleppo, but in Morocco and in Libya. And then they replenished their original deposit at Svalbard. At a global level, we have huge seed banks. At the local level, we have seed libraries. I happened upon a seed library at a neighborhood branch of my local library system last year for the first time. I hadn't heard about this before. I was just sort of tickled by the idea, but I didn't understand it at first because usually at a library, you know, you borrow something, then you return it maybe a few weeks later. And it took me a minute to realize that the return period for seeds is a little more extensive and longer, and it takes more work. And I just love this idea of this very long-term relationship between taking and giving back. Yeah, which is which is what gardening is, right? Like that, and that's what seeds are between the plants and and their environments. And 
It really is just a beautiful, elegant idea to harness the great democratic ideal of a public library and incorporate it with a an ancient practice of seed swapping among among humans and saving and then sharing forward with your community. I mean, pretty much everywhere you you are, there is a seed library. You've been gardening for a long time, and a lot of the people you talk to on your radio program are gardeners. What did you learn in the process of researching and writing this book about seeds that changed something that you do in your garden or has changed the way that you think about gardening? Well, I am personally just trying much harder to pay close attention to how my plants are producing seeds, when they're producing seeds, appreciating that, sharing anything I learn about it back out, uh, and trying to highlight as many seed keepers and support their work as possible. Because it, it is, again, this foundational element of what we all rely on, that if it is in peril, we are all in peril. That's Jennifer Jewell. She's the creator and host of the weekly public radio program, Cultivating Place, which is syndicated on NPR affiliate stations across the nation. And she is the author of the recent book, What We Sow. Jennifer Jewell, thank you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It has been a pleasure to have this conversation. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us on UPR every Thursday morning at 1030. If you miss us, then you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. And however you listen, please consider giving your support to public radio. You can do that at donate.nprstations.org slash UPR. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. Big ideas.